Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Afternoon, Jim. Nice to see you again. Uh, welcome to everybody to the latest episode of The Other Hand. It's actually great to have Jim back because he would be far too modest to say this, but certainly in his absence uh, and on his return, we've noticed movements in our ratings on the various podcast charts. And while me and my guests were certainly up there in the ratings, I'm pleased to say. Uh, I must say that now that Jim is back, we're, we have been reoccupying the number one position in the Apple podcast business charts. So uh, welcome back, Jim. It's great that uh, we are back where we should be. Dare thank I you. say, I hope you don't mind me saying that. No, uh, thank you very much, Chris. You have me blushing here. Yes. Well, I know that you'd never ad- admit to these things, the personality that you are. It's an auspicious day in, in a number of regards, not just because of the uh the resumption of our number one position in the league tables. It's actually, this is a wee bit more important than that. It's the first anniversary of the announcement of a COVID-19 vaccine. It's one year to the day. It's also just a couple of days ago that we had more pharmaceutical announcements of a couple of antivirals, which are quite rare in in, in medicine, in, in pharmaceutical research. There are antiviral treatments for other viruses, but I think we've all experienced going to the doctor and being told, oh, you've just got a virus and there's nothing we can do because we don't have any treatments for viruses, which I think is generally true. So it's fantastic that we have these antiviral treatments. It's not just about coronavirus. I'm hearing on the, from various sources that uh, there's even a hope whispered rather than spoken that, that these antivirals are going to lead to 
cures for other coronaviruses, which is code for the cure for the common cold. We can we can live in hope. So it's been an absolutely amazing, well, couple of years for us all now. Uh, but one of the things that I wanted to remark upon, given that this is a business podcast, is the way in which the pandemic, the advent of antivirals, the advent of vaccines has affected stock markets and other asset markets. One of the things that I think that we're all acutely aware of is that stock markets have done very well. Even if you're not involved in stocks and shares, if you glance at the business pages or the headlines there, you'll see that the S&P 500, which is the US stock market, is at an all-time high as we speak, as is the German market. Others less so. We might talk about the ones that haven't done quite so well. And I guess everybody knows about the share prices of Facebook and Amazon. It's not Facebook anymore, Jim. What's it called? Meta, isn't it? Sorry, we must must get it right. Microsoft, uh, Netflix, and and the so-called Fangs, Fangs Plus, as it's called now, because we now must put Tesla into that basket of stocks that everybody assumes has led the world upwards. That's, That's wrong, actually. Since vaccine day one year ago, it's been hotels. Hotels, if you simply invested in a basket of stocks of the world's hotel share prices, you'd have done even better than investing in Amazon, Facebook uh, and the like. So there are lots of things going on. Uh, We talk about inflation and bond markets a lot since then, and and lots of interesting things still happening there. One of the most interesting things happening at the moment is that bond yields are actually falling which I don't think anybody anybody expected. Lots going on in financial markets. The, the, the overriding message, though, from global equity markets is that the world is a great place, Jim. Would you share that general feeling of optimism and elation? Well, Chris, uh, I actually hadn't realised until you said it that today is the first anniversary of the announcement of the first vaccine. And um, you'd have to say that over the last 12 months, and indeed over the last couple of years, the global pharmaceutical industry has really come up to the plate. Um, clearly, they have invested all of their resources in the development of medicines to both prevent and to deal with COVID-19. So um, I think, you know, hats off to the global pharmaceutical industry. Um, it has certainly taken the world back from a serious abyss. Uh, if you think about the impact all of this has had on equity markets uh, initially, when COVID-19 struck, uh, not surprisingly, we saw equity markets fall very sharply as large swathes of economies were shut down in a pretty unprecedented way. But really, that weakness only lasted a few weeks. Suddenly, there was a view that um, you know the world would recover and equity markets started to go ahead again. So the COVID impact was pretty minimal considering the global event that was actually happening and the possible consequences for global economic activity. But um, and we've basically seen that continue with the odd um, setback along the way. So it's, it's, it's been an absolutely phenomenal story. And it's a story that has just built on everything that has happened since March 2009. So it's been an incredible period for global equity market performance. And looking at some of the records that have been achieved in recent days, the DAC, the German DAX, the stock market there hit record highs this morning. Uh, the Dow passed the infamous 36,000 mark last week. And um, if you look at the, the, the basis behind all of that, I mean, it's it's really been heavily driven by the activities of the pharmaceutical sector because clearly 
if the world can return to a semblance of normality, which is what is happening now, that's good for corporate earnings and should be good for equity markets. And looking at the latest reporting season in the United States, the S&P 500, 82% of companies reported were above market expectations. And that's a phenomenal strong statistical performance. Uh, the global average, excluding the United States, I think is about 60%. So, and, and we spoke last week about the employment report that came out of the States. So clearly, the US economy um, is doing pretty well at the moment. And based on what markets are telling us, um, you know, the world does look rosy. But um, I was reminded last night from one of our regular listeners and um, a close family member in San Francisco who said, I have two comments to make on your latest podcast. One was um, the injudicious language used by your colleague. (laughs) (laughs) I I won't go there, Chris. Uh, The second piece was uh, he felt we were trying to downplay what was happening on the inflation front in the States. And he was just saying that everything he does in his life at the moment is becoming incredibly expensive. Uh, Gasoline for the car, um, eating out, food generally, everything is increasing significantly in price. And he felt that we were trying to downplay that sort of threat and reality. Uh, I don't think we we were because I went back and re-listened to the podcast. I don't think for one moment we were trying to downplay uh, what's happening on the inflation front. I think we were basically making the point that, okay, inflation is running at 5% year and year in the state. So that is significant. It does represent a significant increase in the cost of living. But um, the Federal Reserve's view of the world is still that this is transitory, that prices will, inflation will level off sometime in 2022. Um, And I guess we were expressing that sort of more relaxed view from the US Central Bank rather than our own personal views. Because... Uh, clearly, it's it's the big issue now. Um, yeah, yeah. Cost of living, the supply chain problems we're having, uh, it's just dominating everything. So there is, and we've spoken about this, you know, in another context last week, there certainly is, or there does appear to be a significant um, break in reality between climate change and the implications of that, between what's happening on the inflation, cost of living and supply chain front, and what markets are actually doing. So we've got an inflation problem in the world, particularly in the United States. Uh, We worry about the disconnect between the climate crisis and the economic future as uh, exemplified or as perhaps uh, built into share prices because share prices, particularly in the United States, but not just there, are saying that the future is extremely bright, that we're not in any kind of serious crisis, uh, climate or indeed any other kind. So we have... Uh, paradoxes abound. The US market in particular is telling us that the future is bright and that anybody that's worried about inflation, that anybody's worried about the environment, and in fact, anybody that's worried about anything. And I know you, Jim, you you know, you know, find things to worry about um, <laughs> at the best of times, don't you? Do you share that optimism? And the reason why I ask is, is, is twofold, really. One, we've asked this question of each other a few times over the course of the last uh, nine or 10 months that we've been doing this podcast. And we start by saying we, we never, ever forecast anything, let alone the stock market. We wouldn't go near saying with any degree of precision what we think the stock market is going to do. But we've wondered whether this great big 
bull market rising stock prices thing that we've observed why we've been doing the podcast and before is likely to continue does it have solid fundamental grounding as an economist would say or not and we've mused that you know it's certain we've said at times it looks very stretched if you look at the metrics that analysts use to answer that question which are usually things like valuation is it is the stock market expensive on some criteria or is it cheap on some criteria? And the answer is always, well, blimey, it looks very expensive relative to accounting ratios, relative to the stock market's own past. And so we, we sit there, one, you know, it's a bit like looking at the British government sometimes for me. What on earth is holding it up and why doesn't it fall? And yet it's always there. So there are lots of things that you, you could ask, but the, 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 the fundamental question is, there's a lot of optimism there, despite the things that we worry about continuously. Are you more or less worried? Are you sanguine? Do you share the stock market's optimism, Jim? I'm minded of a few things, Chris. I remember when we worked together um, analysing financial markets, um, I remember one day saying to you, the markets are wrong at the moment. And I remember your response was, the markets are never wrong. The markets are the markets and they are what they are. And um, I don't know, do you still share that view of the world, but that the markets are what they are. And um, what, what we're seeing from the markets at the moment, as you've described, is an incredibly upbeat assessment. But sometime in the middle of the night, um, last night, early this morning, I was awake, which wouldn't be unusual. And I was just flicking through my iPad and I came across, I forget actually what the publication was, some obscure publication, but it was citing a Fed official. And I actually don't know who the Fed official is, but the Fed official was warning that the prices of risky assets keep rising them, keep rising, excusing, excuse me, making them susceptible to perilous plunges if the economy takes a turn for the worse. So clearly there are people within the Federal Reserve who are fearful that the markets are just ignoring everything at the moment and continuing to go ahead. And that that is always a dangerous, slightly risky situation to be in or perilous, as the Fed official described it. I, I suppose from my perspective, if you look at what's happening on the price, on the inflation front, what we're seeing from a corporate perspective is the return of some pricing power. You know, companies are in a position now to push through higher prices. And that's something that has not been evident in most sectors for, um, for for quite some time now. So perhaps this increase in pricing power, the beneficial impact of that on markets will outweigh the less beneficial impact that higher prices would have on consumer spending and hence on overall economic activity. So I, I, I think the markets, you know, continue to analyze what's going on and believe, well, clearly they believe that the valuations at the moment are justified basis on corporate earnings and indeed what's happening in the real economy at the minute. Uh, but you'd, you'd have to think that that warning from the Fed official is one that we should bear in mind because it's something that has definitely happened over the last few years in an environment of historically low bond yields. And they are coming back down again today, having increased modestly over recent months, they're starting to come back down again. But in an environment of historically low government bond yields, in an environment where central banks are in no mind at the moment to increase official interest rates, and hence the whole deposit return environment is going to remain awful, um, investors 
have nowhere else to go other than to equities. And the risk here, of course, is that investors who may be somewhat risk averse are being pushed out the risk curve in order to try to get some semblance of decent return. And um, that's always a dangerous position to create when you push um, conservative risk averse investors out the risk curve. So um, I haven't answered your question, Chris, because I don't really know the answer. Well, I think that that has the virtue of of honesty, Jim, because I think that that really is the only answer that anybody can give is that you don't know. And going back to your earlier remarks about me saying the markets are what they are, that was all those years ago. Me really saying, I think, that I respect what the markets are saying because it's the collective wisdom of millions and millions of people. There are these decisions that are being made in markets every second of every day are a kind of collective wisdom. You could you could argue it's the madness of crowds or collective wisdom, depending on which way you look at it. Yes. And we know that in March 2000, for example, that was definitely madness in that dot-com bubble, which, you know, is 21 years old now. And there are people operating in financial markets today who don't remember that. Chris, and- when, you, when you talk about the madness of crowds, Bitcoin has just passed the $68,000 mark for the first time. Um, and the whole cryptocurrency sector now has a combined value in excess of $3 trillion. And the latest surge in Bitcoin has been driven by the, the launch of the first Bitcoin-linked exchange-traded fund or ETF for U.S. investors in October. So Bitcoin as an investment seems to be becoming slightly more mainstream. And um, as, as somebody like me who's a total dinosaur in relation to Bitcoin, I just don't get it. I don't understand it. And if I don't get or understand an asset class, I would never invest in it, regardless of what it's doing. Um, but I've, as that, a... that's very wise. I mean, that, you know, I think it's very good advice to anybody is to don't invest in stuff that you don't understand. That said, perhaps my thoughts on Bitcoin can be summarized by how I've been thinking about it over the last while in that I do think it's a cult. I, I do think that the rationale that many different people, good friends of mine, whom I respect, give me for give to, put in front of me for investing in Bitcoin, I don't think the rationale stacks up. Uh, and it's all to do with intrinsic worth and not even backed up by a central bank. And you might worry about central bank backing of money these days because they print too much. All, all those arguments I know very well. And I think that uh, it really is uh, something not for me because a bit like you, I don't fully understand it. Uh, but I, I understand it enough, he says, perhaps somewhat arrogantly, to think that I do think it does exhibit cult-like, herd-like, trend-like behavior. Use any of those descriptions to the point where I can see that they, uh, every time that I make a remark about Bitcoin on this podcast or in writing or indeed in Eamon Dunphy's podcast, I get deluged with some very respectful <laughs> messages saying you're wrong. And a lot of hate mail telling me that I'm a complete dinosaur and words much ruder than that for for not liking Bitcoin. And I have seen enough of that and plus my own readings to know that there are a lot of people who are real Bitcoin enthusiasts. And so I've toyed with the idea of jumping on that bandwagon, but only in the sense that I know that I'd be putting 50p into a bandwagon. Because sometimes, you know, in a gold rush, you you, you want to join in, even if there's no actual gold, because you know that uh, there's going to be a lot of shovels sold and a lot of people are going to make money one way or the other. You're, you're, even you're, though... you're, you are sorry, you're, you're describing now the behavior of Irish property investors 
in the period up to 2006, 2007, particularly foreign property. So you could in 2003, 2004 reach the conclusion, as many of us did, that the Irish property market was going nuts. And quite logically and quite rationally said, I think it could have said at the time, and I know people who did say this, it's nuts. But this kind of nuttiness, not just in property, but across all assets, often continues for much longer than we originally would have thought. So why not join in and try and make some money? And when you have enough people like that joining the bandwagon, of course, it gives it another leg. And so you become part of the crowd responsible for it continuing longer than it should. The dot-com bubble itself was an example of many sensible, rational people buying these companies that never had a hope in hell of ever making a profit, of ever paying a dividend, but doing so, you know, very smart people said, this is a bandwagon from which I can make some money because I'll be smart enough to get out before everybody else. And that's, you know, a different investment conclusion or investment approach. I, I don't like doing that. I don't do it very often. I haven't bought Bitcoin, but I have toyed with the idea because I have said to myself over the course of the last few months, this thing is going to run hard again, uh, maybe more than once. And it may well be an opportunity for a, for a flutter in the way that you buy a lottery ticket. That's the way I would view it. I didn't do it, but I don't think there's any particularly fundamental reason for buying Bitcoin. I think in the long term, the authorities will destroy digital currencies by producing and manufacturing their own. Central bank digital money will be will be the thing of the future, I think, uh, because the, the idea that the private sector could usurp central banks must be scaring them to death. So they will be preparing. We know they're preparing strategies to stop that from happening. But yeah, Bitcoin could run a lot further. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's one of those, I would say, manias that, you know, are obviously herd-like, crowd-like behavior uh, that doesn't have an awful lot of rational, fundamental backing. That will get that will get me even more hate mail now if I keep on saying that. So I better shut up. But no, I'm not. I'm not a fan of things like Bitcoin, Jim. I, I remember in 2000 having a conversation with somebody. At that stage, Irish stockbroking firms were staying open late at night to facilitate people who wanted to trade dot com stocks. And I remember having a conversation with somebody who told me they had invested in some dot com shares that evening, and I asked what the company was. And the answer I got was, geez, I have no idea. And I said, what does the company do? Well, it's dot .com. Um, what Does the company make profit? God, I don't know. And, and that kind of summed it all up. I mean, it's... Well, I think there were instances yeah. during that that particular mania where very ordinary companies, companies that made widgets that, you know, sold birdseed or whatever, just changed their name from birdseed inc to birdseed.com there was one really good example of that in the irish corporate landscape fives oh yes that they created was it vice fruit of or was it fruit of the world.com or whatever it was something like dot, that they put a dot com at the end of it and suddenly uh they were i remember talking to the people involved they were bewildered at what was happening their share price just because they put dot com on it and of course if you think about it particularly back in those days uh, the notion of having uh, online fruit, you know, didn't really make yeah. a lot of sense. It may make more sense today, but certainly not back then. One of the things about the Bitcoin that has definitely, I mentioned the launch of the first um, exchange rate, exchange traded fund linked to Bitcoin as really giving Bitcoin a whole new air of respectability for many investors. And we've seen some big financial institutions actually 
you know, jumping on board the Bitcoin bandwagon. And there's an interpretation that this is given respectability. It means that this stuff must be authentic. But I would just hasten um, people to remember what happened with the subprime mortgage market. Yeah. Just and, because and, a financial institution jumps on something does not make it a good thing necessarily. Or indeed a financial institution creates the thing in the first place, which is, which is the, if you think about collateralized debt obligations, the way in which they packaged and resold mortgages, which created the whole financial problem in the first place over a dozen the, years ago. The, the, best was, the best possible well thing I've read on that whole period, if anybody's interested, is Gillian Tett's book. She, she was, I presume she still is, a Financial Times journalist, but she wrote a book called Fool's Gold. And um, it was a really clear exposition of the whole. Yes. Um, I, d- I don't want to get sued, so I won't mention the particular no. bank that was involved, but... Yeah. Uh, it 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 um the opening chapter in that book is brilliant yes but the uh the movie of course of of the book of another book called the the big short was the other thing to watch yeah. if, you, if you want an explanation of, of that michael lewis i think i think wrote that That's book correct, didn't yeah. any, well, any i'd recommend anything by by michael lewis and when he writes on financial markets or baseball it's it's always always a great read the thing about all of this mania stuff that we're talking about, Jim, going back to your earlier remark about me telling you that or suggesting to you that we should always respect what the markets are saying, is because the two things are in direct contradiction to each other. Because when we're talking about manic markets, we're explicitly saying we don't respect what markets are saying. So, And, and that's a paradox. And, and that's the paradox that I think financial markets or analysts of financial markets face all the time. Because when I tell you to, when I say to you, res- respect financial markets, I'm echoing what finance theorists have been saying really since the 1950s and the 1960s. We have something called the efficient markets hypothesis, the EMH, which is a bit of jargon for that for those of our listeners that aren't steeped in finance. That that means different things to different people. To me, it just means that beating the market, if you like, of, of t- taking something like an index like the S&P 500 or the FTSE 100, investing and getting a better return than that index is very hard, really, really hard. That's a sort of a, a weak interpretation of the efficient market hypothesis. A stronger one is that uh, markets always and everywhere are encompass all information. They're efficient, pro- efficient processes of information. And uh, One thing can mean the other. You know, if all information is incorporated in asset prices, then, you know, that's one reason why it is very hard to beat the market. You've got to be a very good forecaster. Uh, but if you're going to do that, you've got to have the other bit of uh, modern portfolio theory. You teach on the MBA program at UCD, Jim, I know, so you, you probably yeah. know a lot more about this than I do. But it's always the, the, the joint hypothesis, which is the efficient market idea is always put together with the capital asset pricing model, which I'm sorry for using jargon again. We try to avoid it on this podcast. But that's the bit that always troubles me, which is that that is the one that says that, A, we know how to price assets, and you put the two hypotheses together, and the asset prices are always in some intellectual sense right, which, of course, if you've just listened to all of our thoughts about dot-com, we don't agree. Do you, do you teach this? Is this stuff still taught at MBAs? Yes, it is indeed. Absolutely. The, the capital asset pricing model, all of that stuff is still part of the finance module. It is still, I guess, the orthodox theory, but it's no more nuanced now. And I think there is definitely um, greater interpretation and analysis of why uh, the theory generally doesn't hold up. 
but it is still an interesting theoretical framework for understanding how assets are priced. Yeah, if you remember seven years ago, almost exactly, Jim, the then Nobel Prize for Economics was given to three people, actually, one of whom was Eugene Farmer, mm. which, who was the creator or inventor or first person to put this efficient market hypothesis thing together, uh, who believes that markets are essentially rational, uh, incorporate all available information and are essentially, you know, good things. Mm. A guy called Robert Schiller shared this Nobel Prize who says, no, they're not efficient. No, they're not rational. They're all prone to herd-like behavior and fashions and fad. And a lot of us at the time thought the Nobel Committee was was having a laugh in the avoid, you know, awarding the, the Nobel Prize to two such diametrically opposed views. But as you say, the uh, the, the differences between the two perspectives are, sometimes have subtle overlaps as well. So uh, let, let, let's not, let's not let's not try and do an, an MBA. <laughs> I remember I remember back in two thousand and five sharing a podium in Seattle with Robert Schiller. Wow. Where he absolutely tore apart what was happening on global property markets at the time, including the Irish property market. And uh, I regret I just didn't listen more closely to what Schiller was saying at the time. Yeah. But anyway, he, he did autograph the book, Irrational uh, Exuberance for That's me. That's right. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but again, he wrote that book very early. He did indeed. Absolutely. And yeah. Again, way ahead that, of anybody else. That goes to my point that he was right. Mm. But the market stayed irrational for several years after he wrote the book. And that's the important thing to note here is that I think that we can say sensible things about whether markets look to be broadly sensible, right, fairly valued or not. But we can never say when those valuation anomalies, be they big or small, even when they're huge, are likely to be corrected. So we could talk about Bitcoin now and it might take... A month, it might take 10 years for it to come back to earth. We might talk about the US equity market now in the way that we are, which says, well, it's looking rather stretched to me, but it might look even more stretched for the next decade for all we know. I mean, that, that's, how, and I don't think anybody else knows either. That's the thing. And, and unfortunately, you know, the financial service industry does itself a disservice by pretending to know what's going to happen to these things too often. Can I bring you back to Dublin? Um, please uh, please do. I'll be back next week, actually, Jim. We'll have to have a beer. Let's have a beer. I, I think there are three stories that interested me um, in Dublin today to varying degrees. One was an extremely profoundly depressing announcement, in my view, in the new um, transport plan for Dublin, that the metro to the airport and that an underground dart have basically been pushed out forever. Um, and they're not likely to happen certainly in my lifetime um i think that is a fundamentally missed opportunity uh dublin i've only jim i've only seen the headlines and so i don't want to do the report a disservice but i too saw the fact that it'd been pushed out to at least 2042 indeed i said my lifetime yeah yeah and well mine too mate Uh, and i must say that on the basis of what i've seen which is relatively flimsy and superficial so caveat with those remarks it looks nuts to me Absolute. I mean, how you could possibly what What is the point of writing a report like this? Yeah, I, and, and yeah. putting dates like twenty forty two into it, and but, particularly Chris, in the context of last week, we spoke about the climate change 
Yes, um, exactly. And all that stuff. Um, and, and, and the key objective, if you look at the targets, you know, it's, it's trying to take cars off the roads as much as possible. Absolutely. And uh, this flies totally in the face. I th- yeah, I agree with you. I think it's absolutely nuts. Mad stuff. I, I, there aren't many capital cities of major developed countries that don't have an underground system. No. I can't, I can't think of one, actually. I'm sure some of our listeners will fly at us with, with, with other examples. But off the top of my head, I can't th- think of any serious capital cities that don't have extensive underground railway networks. Yeah, I got the London Underground recently out to Shepherd's Bush to see QPR play. And I was thinking, wow, if only we had something like this in Dublin, it would so improve yes. the quality of life. Why is Dublin so unambitious? Why does Dublin just... I, I, it's, it's a lack of ambition as far as, as far as I can tell. Because it's not even about a lack of money, Jim, because the money is there in one shape or form because we, governments can now borrow, as we know. We've talked endlessly about low yeah. bond deals. Um you could borrow to do you could, to do an underground system very cheaply at the moment and not violate any budget rules as far as I could see. Why, why the lack of ambition? Well, it's a total lack of ability to think forward. Forward thinking, long-term perspective is just totally lacking. Uh, it, it just strikes me that policy is driven by short-term considerations and uh, there's no concept of the long-term. I, I, I've no idea other, other than that what the reason could possibly be um, okay, there are some economists you will hear coming out in the next 24 hours lauding this decision, saying that the Metro never made sense. But some of those economists were also ones that were opposed to the Lewis and the Dart. And we know the impact they've had on public transport in Dublin. They're full, um, aren't they? They are full, absolutely. And instead, we're going for this stupid Bus Connects project that's just going to basically snarl up traffic a lot more. Well, could, I don't think Dublin traffic could be any more snarled up. Well, it? It, it will be if Bus Connects ever sees the light of day. And I, I think explicitly what we saw today was a recognition that Bus Connects is going to happen and that anything more ambitious is well off the agenda for the for foreseeable future. It depresses me, and I think it is totally inconsistent with all of the palaver we hear about the climate change um, ambitions and objectives yeah. of the Irish government. Going back to what I was saying about, you know, markets and capital asset pricing models and all those jargon that MBA students are taught, lurking within that are always capital budgeting exercises, and which cost-benefit analysis is a form of capital budgeting exercise in which, like any investment, any investment project, you work out what's it going to cost you, what's, it, what's the return going to be. And cost-benefit analysis is just a form of that, that any company that, in, that is doing any investment must do this sort of thing. And the tools and techniques that are taught for investment purposes are common across all these different decisions, whether you're investing in stock markets, whether you're buying a machine for your factory, or whether you're building a new underground system. It's all the same kind of technical paraphernalia that enables you to build models and databases uh, that enable you to analyze and interrogate the question and reach a conclusion. And I saw a line in this report today on the transport thing that we've decided that the costs outweigh the benefits. Now, I will bet you 50p, sorry, 50 cents, I must get the currency right, that that is completely bogus because the cost of this any public sector project at the moment is as low as it ever has been because yeah. you're borrowing money for nothing. Yeah. And so you, these, these are the ultimate long duration projects. It's, it, it's, it's as if they decided, you know, 150 years ago that not building the London underground wouldn't be worth the cost. Can you imagine? 
Yeah. It, it strikes me that somebody somewhere has done a number on this, and I really don't understand it. Oh, but yeah. anyway, As you say, there's other things going on in Dublin today. Anything more cheerful than that? Well, well, the second piece of news isn't cheerful either. Um, Eddie Rockets, the burger chain that has, I think it is 50 uh, burger joints around the country, and then there's a number of other franchisers, announced very, very bad results for 2020, losses of over 3 million. As lots of restaurants have done. Uh, of course they have. And um, the directors have said there is serious doubt over the ability to keep the oh, no. business going. And it's it's around for uh, 32 years. It yeah. was founded by a guy called Niall Fortune, whose I brother we would have known in the we past. We would have known, time. yeah. Good old Indeed. Brian, yeah. yeah. God, God um, bless him. God bless him, absolutely. And uh, I I find this very sad because I, I, I think it, it definitely brought... Uh, a nice ambiance to the fast food yeah <laughs> for sure in country uh per- personally i used to love going in particularly in the early days you had the feel you were going into an american diner absolutely and, uh, for somebody who rarely got to the united states that felt good at the time do we have any sense of i mean obviously there's been the pandemic but any particular not all restaurants have closed as a result of the pandemic is there anything in the news that suggests why they've gotten into this particular state well they had also delivered losses in 2019 so you know so they, they weren't doing that well going into the pandemic was no, the they, weren't, they weren't okay. they weren't and right. in, in the middle of last year they or sorry the middle of this year they closed the local one here where i live um but anyway that's that that's the second piece of news and the third piece of news that is going to dominate the news headlines tonight and probably over the next few days um a lot of trees will be destroyed writing about it tomorrow and that is the death of the former chief executive and chairman of Anglo-Irish Bank, Sean Fitzpatrick. Uh, so, so somebody told me on Friday that he'd been admitted to hospital in a bad way. And um, it was announced today that he had died yesterday. So um, that that's a big one. It's bringing back a lot of analysis, a lot of memories to a lot of people today. Yeah, I guess a lot of people will be writing stuff about the great financial crisis and Ireland's version of it again. Indeed, uh, middle, yeah, all of that stuff will be regurgitated. There's obviously a very human story, which mustn't mean neglected there. Somebody's, you know, a man has lost his life, a family has lost a father and a husband and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but the financial crisis will not inevitably be a part of his obituary. Uh, It'll dominate it, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, mm. yeah. Okay, well, may he rest in peace. Absolutely. So that's, that's kind of it. Um, so happy vaccine anniversary. Yes, and uh, I, I must report, I've, I've now been boosted. So uh, I have had COVID, I've had two doses of Astra and one dose of Pfizer. So I, 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 I've, I, I've, got the, I've got the full set, I think. You have the full set. Uh, I'll, I'll definitely have that beer with you next week. You, you would appear to be a very safe risk. Absolutely, absolutely. So, well, touch wood when I say that, of course, because <laughs> I don't think that uh, anything is guaranteed when it comes to COVID. Yeah. Okay, Jim, shall we call it there? Okay, sir. Good to talk. Good to talk, as always, and I'll speak very soon. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power, on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.